Hello, and welcome to Knockler Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. Over the past couple years, the general consensus around Donald Trump, even between left and right wing politicos who agree on little else, has pretty much been that he is different. Whether the change that Trump's presidency represents is good or bad is, of course, much debated. But these debates, I think, often ignore an underlying question, which is how much of a change is Donald Trump really? When we look at the Trump administration's policies regarding Latin America, it's pretty clear that they're rooted in decades of U.S. economic and military policies. And I think they've aggravated and often directly caused domestic turmoil in countries south of the border and ignored and denied culpability for the crises that such turmoil has created. In the summer issue of the Knockle Report, our contributors focused on how the Trump administration's policies have changed U.S. relationships with Latin America, but also how they have maintained or intensified existing dynamics. The summer report is now up online, and some articles are available to read without a subscription at nakla.org, so you should definitely check those out. Today, I'm speaking with report contributor Mike Bustamante, assistant professor of history at Florida International University in Miami, about the relationship between the United States and Cuba, which of course changed drastically during the last years of the Obama administration, but which now appears to be reverting to old patterns under Trump. There's also some new internal dynamics within Cuba that we're going to talk about. In a turn of events that's become all too familiar for journalists in the Trump era, Mike's article unfortunately went to print just before the president announced his intention to, quote, cancel the deal between the U.S. and Cuba. So today we'll have a chance to discuss just what canceling the deal might mean, some of those internal dynamics, as well as Cuba's relationship to other countries in the region, and what the implications of these developments could be. Mike, welcome to Nakla Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. So maybe we can start with just a little bit about your work on Cuba um, and kind of your thoughts and your attitude in approaching this specific article for NACLA. Sure. Um, so I've been traveling to thinking about writing about Cuba since 2005. Um, I went to Cuba for the first time as an undergrad, a wee undergrad, um, and, and got hooked uh, in terms of uh, Cuba's history, but also um, in terms of thinking about Cuba's contemporary situation. And I carry that interest through to some time after college working at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., where I worked on U.S.-Cuba relations uh, issues, among other things. And then I went back to grad school and have become a historian, but I've kind of maintained an, an interest in Cuban contemporary affairs and the relationship of internal Cuban dynamics to the U.S.-Cuban dynamic that always seems to be so prominent in the way that we talk about Cuba. So I think my motivation for writing this article, um, really at the invitation of Nakula's editors, was to try to take stock of what have really been some quite extraordinary years, uh, if nothing else, but but in a symbolic plane. I mean, we have gone, in the latter Obama years, we went from uh, really a policy of still considerable diplomatic uh, uh, isolation to one of real substantial engagement. Uh, president Obama visited Cuba. He was the first U.S. president to visit the island since 1928. That was a sort of huge, uh, hugely symbolic moment and a complicated one and one that took a lot of us, you know, weeks, I think, to dissect. Mm -hmm. And we saw tons of Americans start going to the island. And there was, you know, Cuba became trendy in ways that I think for those of us that have been following the place for a long time, we're both excited about and annoyed by. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so it's been a bit of a roller coaster over the past couple of years. And, you know, to add to the this roller coaster effect, um, just as this bilateral dynamic seems to be moving towards slowly something called normality, although we can discuss what that really means, President Trump gets elected. 
And President Trump got elected having promised very late in his campaign to, as you already mentioned, quote unquote, cancel President Obama's, quote, deal with Cuba. And this threw sort of into doubt what was going to happen in the bilateral dynamic and what that might mean for ongoing Cuban internal dynamics. So my, my aim with the piece was really to sort of take stock of where Cuba has uh, sort of how, how far Cuba has traveled in a sense, um, particularly on the economic front over the past uh, really 10 years, also take stock of the legacies of what um, we Cubanologos have started to call for shorthand D17, meaning uh, the sort of era of normalization with the United States after Obama's announcement on December 17th, 2014, and then start to make some predictions about you know, what might happen? What might the Trump administration do? How far might they go in, in rolling this back? I tried consciously to avoid making too precise predictions, uh, given how unpredictable Trump is. Um, but, uh, you know, I think some of what I had in mind has, has, uh, has come to be and other things haven't. So, uh, it's still a moving picture, but, um, but that's where we are now. Great. So just to get started, um, maybe we can talk about what this announcement from Trump really means. I mean, what what is the policy? What's going to change? Well, in some respects, th- this is a policy announcement that I think was about more um, more show and theatrics than substance. There's a lot that's remaining the same. Uh-huh. But um, there are two really key differences that I would highlight and that the administration has certainly put forth as the main kind of planks of its new of its new policy. The first has to do with a slight rollback of the ability of sort of average U.S. folks to travel to the island. At a certain point in the Obama years, actually just in 2015 or so, so it wasn't even really from the beginning, the Obama administration had made it possible for individuals to go to Cuba on what are called people-to-people exchanges, but you could go sort of self-certifying. Previously, you had to travel to do that. You had to go as part of an organized tour group. And then the Obama administration said, well, you can just go. Um, And it was kind of like a wink, wink, don't go sit on a beach, but go. And that really opened the floodgates for a lot of folks just going on their own. And it was a real boon to the the small business sector um, of the economy in particular. And so now the Trump administration has said, we're going to roll that back. And where you, if you want to go as people to people exchange, you've got to go as an organized tour group again. And that has different implications for sort of who it benefits um, in the Cuban economy. The second major thing is that they've said that uh, U.S. businesses, U.S. individuals can no longer have any kind of direct relationship or, or economic interaction with entities linked to the Cuban military. And that's important mm-hmm. Because the Cuban military has a pretty important role in the economy for good or ill. Um, the optics of sort of a military running, uh, particularly significant portions of the tourist economy, you know, major hotels in the island are often joint ventures between a, a foreign, say, European company and a Cuban company linked to the Cuban military. The optics of that are, are, are not great necessarily, you know, even for, for average Cubans. Um, and, and so this has been a real thorn in the side. For those who are were critical of Obama's approach and, and thought that this was sort of funneling too much money into the, the military apparatus, so to speak. So they said that you can't do that anymore, which means, you know, you can't stay in a good number of the hotels in theory. 
Um, but some of the, the implications of what this is going to mean for travelers are still sort of to be seen. Uh, because the Cuban military is so important in the economy, it kind of sets up this weird situation where if I'm a legal traveler, uh, I can still go, for example, for research purposes. But if I want to buy a bottle of water, most of the sort of retail stores where one could do such a thing uh, are owned by the Cuban military. So would I now be in violation, even if I'm a legal traveler? Can I not buy a bottle of water at a at a certain state run store? So is the is the language of the policy that broad? I mean, it applies to corporations striking deals with the Cuban military, but also just someone buying a bottle of water. <laughs> well, it's it's unclear at this point, and I use right. the, the 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 bottle the uh, bottled water example as a hypothetical because we have to wait for the Treasury and Commerce departments to actually roll out regulations that implement sort of the policy vision that that Trump announced um, in the speech in Miami and then in this presidential directive. So just how narrowly or widely they define what engagement with the Cuban military means, that's still that's still to be seen. But potentially if it's described if it's defined uh, quite quite widely, you could have these sort of um, bizarro world situations um, that I'm describing, which would not be unprecedented in the realm of U.S. Cuba policy. I, I, I will say, or in the realm of current U.S. politics. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so they're going to restrict the kinds of travel that can happen, what kinds of people can come, and and the fact that people can't go individually, just you know, on vacation or something anymore. They have to go in these uh, controlled, kind of certified tour groups. And then they're also right. controlling where they can go, what kind of businesses they can patronize. How is this going to affect in, in kind of concrete terms what's going on in Cuba, the small business economy? Well, it's it's interesting and, and it's contradictory. One of the more curious elements of Trump's rhetoric when he gave his speech in Miami was the degree to which he seemed to embrace what had been really a fundamental rhetorical plank of the Obama approach which was we want to engage Cuba, we want to send people down there because we believe that that can help um, sort of jumpstart or boost the growth of this small business sector that is already kind of popping up on the island. And that was used as a, a kind of justification for the opening more broadly. The Trump team has ironically uh, taken that same kind of rhetorical plank and, they, and they've twisted it to, to, to new ends. Prior to Trump's announcement, Supporters of the embargo, opponents of rapprochement with Cuba, never really gave much credence to the idea that the United States should try to promote small business. And Trump's policy announcement, his policy directive actually embraces that end. And they said, what we're doing by blocking ties with the military, right, we're, we're, we're pushing people into the small business sector. The thing is, by, by, if you block ties with the military, that's one thing. But if you also cut off the ability of individual Americans to go and you force them into group travel, group travel that by the nature of how it works, you have to work with counterpart travel organizations, uh, uh, sort of uh, tour guide companies uh, that are linked to the Cuban state. You're pushing people into the state sector, the economy, not to the private sector. And you're limiting the amount of people that are going to go to Cuba, rent a private room from somebody on Airbnb, go to a private restaurant. So the small business people, despite the Trump administration's pretense of supporting them, are freaking out. And they're anticipating that they're going to lose a lot of business. And I don't think this is in the interests of a kind of uh, 
pattern of economic change that the United States might want to support and that many Cubans might want to see. And it just blatantly contradicts, um, or I should say, the effects of the, of the policy that they're going to implement blatantly contradict the, the stated purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, you do you do avoid specific predictions, which I think um, working as a historian slash journalist at, at this point in time is a is a wise move. <laughs> one one place where you got it pretty spot on, though, is is the case of the wet foot, dry foot policy. So Trump says he's going to cancel this deal. And then he actually does kind of leave in place a lot of the measures that the Obama administration introduced. One of them is eliminating this immigration. Some would call it a loophole. Others would call it, you know, dangerous in the way that it channels people through South America. Um, And this is something that fans of the embargo are happy about, um, because they are probably also anti-immigration. And the whole idea was, right, this pressure cooker thing. So, I mean, when he says cancel, he doesn't really mean cancel. And maybe in that sense, he's, he was entirely predictable. Um, in that he's and that he wants to reinstate the embargo, but then on the other hand, he is leaving in place some of these changes um, that the Obama administration introduced. Right. Uh, so I, I think my my rea- I'll, I'll get into the wet foot, dry foot example specifically because mm-hmm. I think it's an important one, and it, it was one where I felt pretty confident that he was not going to change things, uh, and I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, but in general, you know, my reaction to the Trump announcement, uh, I think a couple weeks ago at this point has alternated between um, annoyance, disgust at the kind of optics of it, concern over the impacts that it is going to have for real people in Cuba, but also a sense of relief. And I realize that that's sort of contradictory. Um, But the relief comes from the fact that there, if, if you look at sort of where we were before Obama came in and where Trump has now moved us back to, the ball has still moved in many ways forward. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, you know, before the Obama presidency, to cite one important example, Cuban Americans, uh, to say nothing of American citizens uh, overall, but Cuban Americans had very strict limitations on when they could go visit the island just to see family or to whom they could send money on the island. Right. You could only go to visit Cuba once every three years. So that, you know, created situations where, you know, you had a relative that got sick and then might die and you might have to choose where, where you're going to go see them on their, uh, you know, in, in the hospital or, or at the funeral. Um, Obama allowed Cuban Americans to travel freely and openly. And the reality is, is that this is super popular among Cuban Americans, among the Cuban diaspora. And Miami's politicians, as pro-embargo as they may be, are aware of that. So rolling back Cuban American travel was a losing political proposition for them. And so it's not surprising that that's something that actually hasn't been touched by by the Trump administration. Uh, There are a number of other key things that haven't been touched either. The embassies are still going to be open. Those who were opposed to any effort to normalize ties used to argue that the mere presence of an embassy, even though we already had sort of a quasi embassy in the form of a U.S. interest section, the mere presence was a form of legitimizing the Cuban regime. And now they seem to be okay with the fact that it's still still going to be there. Um, I, I, you know, maybe that's symbolic, but I actually think it means something to have a fully staffed embassy and for the Cuban government to have a fully staffed uh, and recognized embassy in Washington. Um, there are a number of bilateral agreements that have been signed that we're going to have to see sort of how active the Trump administration is in trying to uphold them or abide by them, but presumably they stay um, intact. And, and the most important, I think, is, is the one on migration. 
Um, and this is one of the very last things that the Obama administration did in its measures toward normalizing the relationship with Cuba, which was to get rid of or at least sufficiently uh, strip away what was a quite exceptional treatment that Cuban migrants received coming to the United States. And that had its origins in the Cold War and was then updated in the 1990s. And that's the wet foot, dry foot policy that you that you mentioned, which basically said that um, if you were Cuban and you touched U.S. soil, whether, um, you know, a beach having come on a raft or a, a U.S. Uh, point of entry at uh, a border, say the U.S.-Mexico border, you were paroled in the United States. You were basically guaranteed entry. And then an older law dating back to 1966, the Cuban Adjustment Act, would then allow you to adjust your status to legal permanent residency after one year in the United States. Um, so Obama got rid of the wet foot, dry foot policy. And the Cuban Adjustment Act, interestingly, still is on the books. So there still might be a way for you know, Cuban who comes in with a, a legal visitor's visa to then overstay a visa. And if they live in the shadows for a year, presumably they can adjust their status, although that's still going to be worked out in the courts. But wet foot, dry foot was a big item on the Cuban government's wish list uh, of things that would would change in the relationship. They saw this as incentivizing dangerous migration. They saw this as uh, incentivizing uh, or, or perpetrating brain drain uh, on the Cuban economy. Right. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, it, it, you mentioned, I think that that this was something that embargo supporters would logically be be in favor of that is getting rid of wet foot dry foot and that's not entirely true historically historically at least you know the the part and parcel of the kind of ideology that supported the embargo part and parcel of sort of the cuban-american uh the traditional cuban-american political mission statement, as it were, when it came to Cuba, was this idea that we're going to put sanctions on the Cuban government, but the United States is going to be a place of refuge for those who are fleeing communism. And so for a long time, it was considered, you know, as a Cuban-American politician, you didn't touch the Cuban Adjustment Act, you didn't touch wet foot, dry foot. Um, Wet foot, dry foot, actually, insofar as it, it restricted things a little bit from what had been before, was harshly criticized by the Cuban-American community. Um, before wet foot, dry foot, you could get picked up at sea by the Coast Guard and then still be allowed in. Wet foot, dry foot made it so that you, if you got picked up at sea, you'd be sent back. But if you made it to shore, you would, you would arrive. But interestingly, that dynamic did start to change. And it started to change in concert with a change in Cuba's own migration laws um, from about five years ago. Cuba started making it easier for people to leave. And they started making it easier for people to stay abroad for a longer period of time and still maintain their residency on the island. And so that created this weird sort of synergy. The Cuban government said that folks could be abroad for two years, up to two years, and not lose their residency. And according to Wet Foot, Dry Foot, and then the Adjustment Act, you could get to the United States and apply for a green card after one year. So that set up a scenario in which folks were coming getting a green card, and then also maintaining uh, their status on the island, which in the context of the island's economic reform sometimes meant a business, it sometimes meant still having a home, etc. And this kind of transnational flow that was made possible by the, the combination of U.S. migration laws and Cuban migration laws really started to irk the Cuban-American establishment. They saw this as people taking advantage of those uh, U.S. migration laws. 
And so the opinion had begun to shift among Cuban-American politicians that were pro-embargo. So it used to be you supported the embargo, but you also supported the right of Cubans to leave the island and come to the United States. Now, uh, you know, people started to realize that if you if you wanted to have a pressure cooker effect, this was the escape valve that was always going to prevent that pressure cooker from ever working. Right. Um, and so that dynamic has changed. And that's made it why, you know, you don't see uh, Cuban-American politicians, uh, you know, crying foul that um, wet foot, dry foot hasn't been been put back in place, for example. So uh, so the opposition to this, the I mean, it's really the, the opposition to the idea that someone would move to the United States, maintain residency in Cuba, and maintain some kind of activity in Cuba, like a business. Uh, it's it's still all kind of rooted in this um, dislike, distaste for the Cuban government. Of course. Okay. So yes. these are Cubans, the Cuban voters, the politicians who are pro-embargo are people who are pretty much their their attitude towards Cuba is geared towards this pressure cooker effect that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. And that and that that calculus has hasn't changed. Right. Um, what 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 has changed is their sort of their their opinion has changed. Um, and sometimes they'll say this more openly than others. Right. But but there's been a really interesting, sometimes very ugly debate in Miami itself before, um, you know, the Trump announcements about and before Obama got rid of wet foot, dry foot about whether this sort of circular flow of, of people and goods that had become possible under the cover of these migration laws in the U.S. and in Cuba was a good or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some people saw it as giving life to the Cuban economy. And if your mission is to sort of um, depress the Cuban economy with the hope of provoking a kind of a political transformation, then this was this had started to, to become seen as sort of anathema to that goal. Um, so, so that that's been one area in which Cuban American, you know, political opinion, at least on the pro embargo side, has kind of shifted. Uh, and so, I don't, again, I don't think it's a surprise that in Trump's announcements, the removal or the the, the elimination of the wet foot dry foot policy hasn't been touched because, ironically, paradoxically, it's something that the Cuban American right and the Cuban American and, and the Cuban government agree on. They they all wanted wanted the law gone. And that's, that's I think, a, a, a strange correlation of forces. As much as this announcement was, I think, more bark than bite, the optics of it were disconcerting insofar as they were sheerly about a transactional uh, exchange vis-a-vis Cuban-American politicians. Yeah. Um, this, for him, was about domestic politics. It was about securing the support of Cuban-American legislators for any number of issues on the domestic front. Um, that's it. So, so to, to such a degree that he's basically, he basically outsourced the, the, the writing of this policy to them. Um, and so I think from the perspective of someone who believes that foreign policy in the best of terms should be the work of foreign policy professionals, it's disconcerting to see someone like Senator Marco Rubio tweet an image of himself shortly after Trump's announcement. Uh, I think the quote was, here I am finalizing Trump's Cuba policy. Right. Uh, to which my reaction was, you're not in the executive branch. You're, you're a legislator. You advise and, and, and regulate. Um, but you don't write foreign policy. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are. I don't think this was really about Cuba at the end of the day. Um, and that perhaps speaks to some of the kind of more bark than bite aspects of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could, we could talk about the Trump administration and its many, many shortfallings, um, for the rest of, our time here, but, uh, you know, the kind of 
Branching off from this pressure cooker idea, I think one thing that we discussed before we started recording was the idea that like the, the whole pressure cooker concept is it sort of relies on this assumption that the United States is like the one major factor in determining Cuba's future and its present, um, which, of course, is not the case. In your article, you point out that the um, drop of oil prices around the globe, particularly the effect that that's had on Venezuela, um, has in turn affected Cuba and its ability to conduct um, trade with Venezuela. So the crisis there is is a big um, factor in, in kind of uh, feeding or, or starving Cuba's economy, but also there are internal dynamics at play. Um, I'm especially interested in the case of Afro-Cubans who um, you wrote were, were disadvantaged actually by these new kind of private business um, initiatives that the Cuban government is putting in place. So maybe you could talk a little bit about these initiatives. Um, I know that they haven't, the, the situation hasn't changed much um, since you wrote the article, but uh, listeners may not be familiar with, with the program. Yeah, sure. And, and it's an important um, point to make because I think if, if the expectations around normalization with the United States were in some sense overheated, um, so has been um, a kind of tendency to to overstate the results right mm -hmm. there there have been things happening in cuban society that predate um normalization as such that started in 2014 uh the the unfolding dynamic with the united states had very significant ripple effects for those ongoing internal dynamics but there there are endogenous processes in cuba that predate normalization and that very likely will will continue you know, in this in this new era, and so I think it's important to try to weigh the relative um, uh, influence of, of these two factors: Cuban internal dynamics and Cuban external dynamics. Which, of course, is a, is a difficult proposition because these things are always intertwined. And and this is, I think, one of the fundamental problematics of of Cuban history. Right? You cannot tell Cuba's history without the history of its relationship with the United States going back to the Spanish-American War, but it's a mistake to see Cuba's history as only a function of its relationship with the United States. And that's a kind of um, challenge that we still face today. So in terms of Cuba's internal dynamics, you know, it, it really goes back to 2006 when Fidel Castro falls ill, steps down uh, at first provisionally and then permanently, and Raul Castro comes into power. And he began what was a, a pretty interesting uh, process uh, of talking about the economy with the, with the degree of frankness that, that certainly Cubans weren't accustomed to. At one point, he said, we either reform or we sink, right? Um, mm. he, he, of course, the, the, never was there any inkling of wanting to break with, quote unquote, socialism. But there was a, a recognition that the Cuban uh, state could no longer afford to basically uh, carry through a policy of full employment, that the state was, the state payroll was inflated. You had people, um, you know, three people doing the job that maybe two or one person could do. And so what they started to do was to say, we're going to lay off a bunch of people from state jobs, and we're going to create some space for what was already a very small and make it a little bigger sector of the of the of the economy that's in private hands. They didn't call it a private economy; they called it a self-employment uh, economy, which is a euphemism for for private business. Um, and so that really that process had had started taking shape, and you saw uh, kind of interesting, sometimes frustrating uh, economic dynamics taking hold. Um, people were opening up uh, private businesses, 
I, I think one of the, the frustrating aspects of this um, for Cubans and for analysts abroad is that this was a very tightly regulated process, um, almost to the point of sort of ridiculousness. Uh, to make a long story short, there's basically 200 plus categories under which Cubans can get a license to operate a, a small business. But those categories are, are super narrow. So the example I like to use is if you go to old Havana, which is kind of, you know, Havana's version of Epcot Center, where there's, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's been beautifully restored. I mean, I'm being overly cheeky here, but it's been beautifully restored and it's, and it's a tourist area, right? You go see the old town. And one of the things that you find there in certain historic plazas are people kind of dressed up in historic garb from the 19th century and you can pose and take a photo with them and, you know, presumably pay them for that. Um, one person dressed up in character versus another who's a different kind of character, they very likely have two different licenses, um, even though they're basically doing the same thing. Um, the, the, that's how sort of uh, the degree of minutia with which these license categories were created. And so there's been a push-pull process of Cubans sort of getting licenses, seeing how far they could test the limits of what that license would allow them to do in terms of a private business. Um, and then sometimes the state saying you know, you've gone too far and then, and then, or, or sometimes not. Would, so would that you whole, say that the degree to which the state is reviewing these licenses is, uh, is consistent or are there certain types that are receiving more scrutiny or, or do you very, know? Very, very hard to, to tell. Yeah. I don't know personally. I mean, I, I don't think it's the, the application process as such. Um, that is the, the difficult thing here. Um, there's a fee you pay. Uh -huh. Um, it, it's, it's the, it's the implementation and, and the art, the example I use in the article, which I still kind of blows my mind is that, you know, people, one of the more popular license categories was, um, being able to basically operate a restaurant. Right. Um, and so some people took that license and what they did was their family members going back to this transnational movement of people and goods their family members started going to Best Buy and buying them, you know, a 3D projector, right, uh, and a flat screen TV, and they would install it in their home. And they would basically, you know, use pirated DVDs and, and have a uh, kind of DIY 3D movie theater in their living room. And they would offer snacks. And that's how they justified it, you know, with the restaurant license, right? <laughs> um, which, which is kind of interesting. And these became for like a six month period, super popular. And then, you know, authorities got wind of this and they said, no, this is sort of perverting the, 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 the use of the license. But rather than saying, okay, well, let's create a new license category for this or just let it slide, you know, they, they clamped down and people were sort of said, well, well what, what good does that serve? They, they were serving a, a demand as banal as it may seem uh, and generating uh, business and tax money for the state, right? Because private businesses pay, pay taxes. So, uh -huh. so why, why clamp down? So that kind of push pull dynamic has has been uh, uh, a important part of the the, the process. Um, but the other thing, going back to your question, that's important is that you know not everybody has the sort of equal ability to get into a private business, right? Starting a private business, even at a very local, small DIY level, re requires some kind of um, capital investment, <laughs> to use that term, right? Uh -huh. Even if it's a couple thousand bucks. And the likelihood uh, of certain Cubans having access to that kind of funds um, versus others uh, really, really varies. Uh, and one of the factors is whether you have Cubans, whether you have family abroad, and whether that family abroad can send you remittances that then effectively become the investment capital to start a private business. And you know, the, the, the Cuban diaspora is largely um, a whiter diaspora for historical right. reasons. 
And so this is set, you know, sort of, I think, uh, intensified inequalities that were already present dating back to the 1990s. And so this has been an economic process in Cuba that's generated a lot of excitement. You know, uh, it's in some sense great that there's like good places to go eat in Havana in a way that there weren't, uh, you know, five, six years ago. But there's a lot of people who don't have the opportunity to, to get into this kind of sector. And those, so the divide between the haves and haves nots has, has, has really grown. And that's, that's been a real tough political challenge for a government that is, uh, ideologically saying that what it's doing is perfecting socialism as opposed to something else. You talk about getting in in, in terms of um, entering this kind of private or self-employment um, economy and Afro-Cubans having limited access to funds. But you also mentioned that there um, are businesses that are turning away Black Cubans at the door. Um, right. So, I mean, it's interesting to think about the the kind of reputation that the Cuban government has, which it largely upholds for being um, a pretty strict regulator, sometimes maybe in idiosyncratic or, or intense um, extreme ways. And then on the other hand, the um, lack of regulation when it comes to racist business policies uh, so that Afro-Cubans are not only kept out of the, of the private sector in terms of being business owners, but also in terms of consuming. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, uh, uh, a challenging, complex, as you can imagine, picture that is 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 a is a moving picture. Um, the info in the article about sort of exclusionary practices and and access to some of these private businesses is admittedly anecdotal um, because there aren't really good studies that have documented this kind of stuff right. rigorously. So, you know, you hear these ports, reports sporadically, but going to Cuba, um, as I do, and, and I've taken groups of U.S. travelers where kind of part of the deal is you eat in um, some of the nicer private uh, establishments that, that have come about, and which when you meet the people working there, you're inspired by what they've been able to accomplish. I mean, it, it kind of makes you a, a, a petty capitalist in a way, right? Because because to run and 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 succeed in, in in running a small business in Cuba is incredibly difficult, and people's level of ingenuity in doing so is is amazing. And then you look around and notice that all the wait staff is white, right? Um, mm-hmm. The patrons are are largely foreign. Um, and and you see you start to see the subtle ways that um, racial inequalities that never went away uh, entirely, despite the revolution, revolutionary government's efforts, um, are, are still there and have started to, to come back with a vengeance. I don't pretend to be able to comment on, you know, what this feels like or actually the degree to which this exists, given my own subjectivity as a as a Caucasian Cuban American male. But um, that those dynamics are are ongoing is undeniable. Um, that there are also efforts among Afro-Cuban activist communities to talk about them and, and address them. That's also undeniable, but that there's also a real lack of response, um, for the most part, on the part of government authorities to try to address this in some way. Um, and, and where that's going to go, I think, is, is sort of unclear. I'm, I'm specifically wondering just kind of where, where will you be looking um, in the coming months and, and even years, um, both in terms of the U.S.-Cuba relation, but I mean, that's pretty straightforward. We'll be looking at Twitter. Um, but, but <laughs> right. you know, what what are you keeping an eye on in terms of uh, within the Cuban the Cuban um, government and the, and just the island itself? Um, sure. So I, I would highlight a couple things um, and building off of some things I mentioned in the article. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting, concerning, etc., about the Trump announcement is the timing. Uh, it comes at a very 
inauspicious time or, or at least an uncertain time for what's going on in Cuba internally. So as much as Cuba was involved in this kind of process of slow but steady economic reform, those reforms, again, for good or ill, because they've had good effects for some and not so good effects for others, that process has kind of stalled over the past couple of years. Um, curiously, just as the Obama administration's normalization policies were sort of coming online. Um, So there's a lot of kind of big ticket items on the Cubans' own internal economic reform agenda to talk, to say nothing about politics, that are unresolved. One of them, for example, is the fact that Cuba has this bizarre, hard to understand dual currency system that creates all kinds of internal distortions in terms of how the economy works. And this is something that the government has said that they want to eliminate, um, but it's a very tricky proposition to to figure out how you do that without a a good deal of economic disruption. Um, Raul Castro is slated to retire as head of state in February. So he's got, what, six-ish months left. so there's a add to that the fact that the Venezuela situation is what it is, and this has had a, a significant economic impact on Cuba to such a degree that, as I mentioned in the article, even in the midst of this unprecedented tourist boom uh, on the backs of growing amounts of U.S. visitors under the Obama administration, Cuba's economy, the GDP last year actually declined by 1%. So there's a lot of uncertainty that's happening. Um, add on to that the fact that Fidel Castro passed away at the end of last year. Right. That has had the effect of, I think, um, uh, reinforcing a desire among those most uh, nervous about or opposed to reform inside the Cuban government to kind of retrench in uh, their attitudes. Um, and now you have a Trump administration that's kind of feeding the old narrative, right? That the U.S. is the is the big bad wolf. Um, what this is going to mean for the degree to which Cuba's own internal process um, continues to move forward or remains stagnant, I think that's one of the main things that I'm going to be watching for. I think certainly it's going to be important to watch who is named as the, the head of state that replaces Raul Castro. We have a good idea of who that will be. There's I think a real question about whether someone that doesn't have the Castro last name um, can can sort of marshal the kind of legitimacy even within the ranks of the Communist Party or between Cuban government institutions to kind of steer the ship in a in a concerted way. Um, those dynamics are really going to be unprecedented and, and interesting to watch. Um, I'll also be watching to to see going back to the U.S. Cuba question sort of some of the details of actually the implementation Trump's Trump's measures. Um, with a lot of this stuff, the devil's in the details, and the, the U.S. government hasn't yet actually issued new regulations that coincide with Trump's sort of policy prescriptions. What's actually in the content of those regulations is going to determine sort of just how, how much of a freeze there is in bilateral relations and travel and the little bit of business ties that was going on or whether there's still going to be substantial loopholes for things to, to continue. So those are all things that I think are, are important to, to highlight. And I think just to end um, on this note, at least I, I, I've been constantly fascinated, frustrated by interested in this ideological dance that the Cuban government is involved in. Um, I, I call their economic reforms a kind of socialist structural adjustment, which is an oxymoron on purpose. Uh-huh. It is a, it is a difficult premise for a government that self-identifies as socialist to say they're going to downsize and open space for private economy and more 
wealth inequality, recognizing that they have to create wealth to then re- redistribute it. But but it is a, it is a delicate ideological dance that has had the effect of I think pluralizing the nature of Cuba's political discussion in a way that it hadn't been for a long time. The debate is no longer just between you know diehard supporters of the Cuban government and diehard opponents, whether they're on the island or in Miami. There's this uh, complicated gray zone of folks who will say things like, I want socialism, but not this socialism, or who will say things like, I maybe am not opposed to the fact that there's one party running the government, but I want to be, be able to elect the president directly. I mean, heck, if the Venezuelans can do it, why can't I? Mm. Uh, so, so that political conversation, which as you can imagine, has really irked some on the kind of loyalist side of the Cuban political spectrum, is been fascinating to watch. And, and where that goes, I think, is going to be really, really important. Um, what I think is, is sometimes difficult to figure out is to what degree those conversations are sort of strictly just talk and virtual, whether they actually matter, because these are sort of groups, uh, whether they're academics or activists that don't tend to represent social movements of any kind, uh, or, or of any depth. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm, that I'm going to be watching sort of where this, where this debate goes. Uh, and, and if I could just mention one sort of symbolic manifestation of this that became abundantly clear this year, um, Right before, I think I can't remember if it was right before or right after, but um, the, the Trump announcement, Cuba formally opened its biggest, newest hotel project, which is a hotel in a very central part of Havana, which is co-run by the Kempinski luxury chain. Um, it is Cuba's quote-unquote first five-star hotel. And at the bottom of it, on the first floor, there's kind of a sort of shopping gallery kind of space where there's different stores and the stores that went in were all luxury brands from, from, from the West, right? I I think Armani exchange has a store there. There's a fancy like pen store or something. Things that are just obscenely expensive for any average Cuban, even a Cuban who has a foot in the tourist sector and is making pretty good money in the middle of that, that gallery space, there's kind of a patio and, Originally, before they started renovating this place, there was a statue there that that was not original to the building, but had been placed there by the revolutionary government at some point, dedicated to Julio Antonio Mea, who was one of the founders of the Cuban Communist Party, the old guard Communist Party back in the 20s. And when the hotel opened, that statue was gone. And, you know, the the image was very interesting and a provocative uh, kind of pseudo dissident artist went to the opening and sort of stood there uh, as a statue, the kind that sort of, you know, freeze frame and you give them a a quarter to them. But but he had on his head uh, sort of the head of this of Julio Antonio Mea. And he had a sign in front that said, uh, Donde esta Meya? Where is Meya? Right. And I think that demonstrates kind of some of the new fault lines in Cuban uh, political life and ideological life that aren't just about right left anymore. I think where where right and left fall is increasingly confusing. And so that's one of the things that I'm going to be watching, too. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That was Mike Bustamante, Assistant Professor of History at Florida International University, and this has been NACLA Radio. If you haven't subscribed to the NACLA Report yet, you should do that now at nacla.org and check out original work by NACLA contributors on the website. We're also on the web at facebook.com slash nacla and on Twitter at nacla. 
Nakla Radio is produced by me. Our web editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocha. Coco, canto del monte, Coco, los plumajes nuevos, Coco. Coco.